0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're working our way through the Book of John. We're on the we're on the second half of chapter two, looking at the at the time where Jesus cleans out the temple uh, from the money changers and the salesmen of animals, and we're going to look at what that's about. Like we've said, you know. Gospels are biographies of Jesus's life, but in the ancient world, they had a different way of, of thinking about history, of doing history, and so the events of the different gospels are not necessarily in strict chronological order. They might, one author might take an event and put it thematically with another event in Jesus's life. And so the different gospels might have different orders of things. Now, there's a broad chronology. Jesus is born. He, he lives. He serves. He's crucified. He raises from the dead. They all agree on that chronology. But within that, there's a, they had a more of a sense of freedom about arranging things thematically. So why would John... Go from the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, which is what we studied last week, and then put next to it Jesus cleansing the temple. That's one of the great ways to approach the Gospels to say, what are the common themes in these events that are being described? Why did the author choose to put these together? Well, last time we saw that a big part of what John is trying to communicate, what he's trying to get across is God is not the God you expect right? We have these certain preconceptions about who God is. And in the turning of water into wine, we see a different view of God than would typically be out there in the street. He's literally keeping the party going, protecting the host of the wedding from shame because they run out in the middle of of the wedding. And he ruins this man-made washing ritual that the Pharisees had set up by taking the water they were supposed to use to wash to show how serious they are about keeping sin away from themselves and literally turns it into wine. Just, well, ending the washing for sure and uh, elevating the, the spirit of, of uh, frivility at the party. I mean, just really just flying in the face of the things that we tend to think of God as stuffy, as he, he loves washing rituals, and he hates wine, right? And this is exactly the opposite. This is exactly against that. We know, too, that a big part of John's focus in writing this is he wants his audience, he wants his readers to understand Jesus is God. These miracles, as we study them, they have importance. They're demonstrating something, that Jesus has power over nature, He can change the molecular structure of water into wine as an act of will. You know, it's not like he went in and, you know, just poured so much wine into the water that it tasted like wine. He didn't have powdered wine that he dumped into the basins, right? That stuff is gross. (laughs) And it didn't exist. He change. I mean, the what would have to happen molecularly, carbon and all kinds of um, different molecular structures would take place to take water and turn it into wine. He can rearrange it. Who can do that? Well, the creator and inventor of water could do that, right? But no one else could. We're seeing this picture that Jesus has come to set the record straight. Man has done a poor job of explaining who God is and following the teachings of the word of God and the prophets. And so he's come as God himself as the ultimate demonstration of who God is because the enemies of God keep distorting who he is and trying to deceive us about this picture of who God is and now we can see God himself dwelling among us in a human situation and what better way could there be? To see the heart of God than to look at Jesus Christ. So John gives us the wedding at Cana. And then he gives us this. John chapter 2 verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So when we last saw Jesus, he was at Cana up in Galilee, which is northern Israel. And he's headed south for the Passover. The Passover was this huge celebration, one of the biggest annual feasts in the Jewish calendar, and people, Jews from all over the area would make a pilgrimage, would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it's weird, it says that he went up to Jerusalem, but he's headed south. But what we have to understand is, again, the way that they describe things in the ancient world. Jerusalem was on, the, on a mountaintop. It was at a high elevation. And even today, if you go to Israel, I've traveled there. No matter what direction you're approaching from, you go up to Jerusalem. And that's how they talk about it. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for, to celebrate the Passover. And thousands of pilgrims from all over other countries and all around what they call the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews across the lands, are headed into Jerusalem, traveling uh, sometimes hundreds of miles to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And so, in verse 14, it says, and when he got there, Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. Now, this is not surprising. This was a part of the sacrificial system where you would have take an animal and offer it up as a sin offering to God. And so, to have a supply there, you know, wouldn't be particularly unusual. And Different people would offer different animals according to what they could afford usually. But the difference here is it says that they were in the temple. That's pretty unusual. And the idea here that like literally that like the temple standing there and there's like goats and oxen like knocking over the menorah. And no, it wasn't literally in the temple. This was in the Gentile court. There were sort of these extra areas surrounding the temple that were part of the temple mount. And so to have animals available there for purchase for people wanting to make a sacrifice would make sense. If you were traveling hundreds of miles Would you want to bring an ox with you? Would you want to bring a goat? You know, it would be much easier just to bring some cash, show up and buy the animal there. So it was a a service of convenience that makes sense. So he got there and he saw them selling these animals. And then there were also the money changers seated at their tables. And what's that about? Well, not in scripture, but in the Talmud, the Jewish tradition... there there was a a tax that they paid. Now, the scriptures describe the tax. It was a voluntary temple tax. It was supposed to be a half shekel where you were contributing to the uh, ongoing upkeep and maintenance of the temple. But the Talmud said, the Jewish tradition said, it had to be a very high purity coin, right? Because God is pure. And if you're gonna give your money to God, it has to be pure silver, And the kind of coins that were minted during this period were not very high percentage of silver, but there had been a coin called a Tyrian. That they could change their coin from Roman currency into the Tyrian, and the Tyrian was needed to pay the temple tax because of the Jewish tradition. And so this money was no longer in use. It was no longer in circulation. So you had to have somebody there so that you could change your money. And of course, there would be a fee, right? in that exchange, so that you could pay the temple tax in the right kind of coin according to the tradition that had the right percentage of silver. And so there was a big business springing up around the temple and the selling of animals and the exchanging of money. And so Jesus sees this and he makes a scourge of cords and drives them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now, this is a pretty well-known scene, you know, Jesus showing up, and we get to see something here that we don't often see, which is, you know, Jesus getting angry. And so, if you're a passionate person, somebody who struggles with, you know, anger, um, I know some people like that you know, you get kind of excited, like, ooh, we'll get to see Jesus when he's mad. And if you watch, you know, some of the films that have been made on this, what happens? You know, Jesus sees it, and he's shocked. He's outraged, right? And he runs over, and he grabs a whip off the wall, because there's whips on the wall. (laughs) And he starts beating people with the whips, you know, and it's, it's like, oh, yeah. But, you know, I started thinking about it, and I started thinking, you know, is that really what happened? I mean, Jesus had been to the temple before. We know that he visited the temple as a child, at least. That's recorded. So he had seen this before. He knew what he was walking into. This had been going on for a very long time. And then it also struck me, he didn't grab a whip off the wall. He made one. You ever thought about that? So Jesus walks up. He's looking at it, and he's like, I need some leather. (laughs) And he, you know... Apparently, they're also selling leather strips or something. And he's just like tying this stuff together. And they're like, what's going on? He's like, I'm making a whip. Are you going to buy an ox? No. (laughs) I mean, it's important because I think it it, it brings us into the way that this looked. It's not like he was, "Ah," you know, whipping, you know. It was like, this is going to change. He puts it together. And the funny, you know, I don't mean to say that Jesus wasn't mad. And I don't mean to say that he wasn't whipping people. You know, you read commentaries on this and, you know, a lot of them are like, well, it does say that Jesus didn't actually whip anybody. That's important, you know. And it's like, no, it's not. He terrified them, drove them out. Whether he whipped them or not, he had the right to. He could. He was really upset about this. And he was doing something about it. Again, look at this. He goes over to the money changers and he does it, you know, he's not running around whipping people, just flipping over tables. He walks up to the money changer, grabs his bowl, pours his bowl out, dumps the coins on the floor, and then flips over his table. <laughs> Do you see that? This is calculated. This is methodical. I'm not saying it wasn't passionate, but it wasn't rage. He says, "You're done. Get out of my house. Go. And it's a very interesting picture. Why does he do it? In verse 16, it says, he did all this, and then he went to those selling doves, and he said to them, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And there we get to start to zoom in on what was on Jesus's heart. That word business is uh, is really like an emporium. Stop making my father's house a mall, is what he's saying. Now, there are other accounts of this in other gospels, and he actually accuses them of being thieves. And the the reason that gets a little bit complicated is because of the chronology. It's possible that Jesus actually did this twice. It's also possible that they are just giving different examples and they are arranging the chronology differently. But sticking with this, it's not specifically that he's upset in the John account that they are robbing people. That's not the point. The point is they're taking the temple of God and they're doing something with it that's obscuring the point of the temple, of the sacrifice, and everything that's going on there. So that's an important question when we look at this. What made Jesus angry? What is it that's driving this unusual behavior? We could ask, Are there, were their practices corrupt? Certainly they were. We know that from the other accounts. You know, there were, there were temple rules about animals that you could bring. And of course, the animals, the closer you would get to the temple, the more expensive the animals would be because of convenience. And one of the rules was you were supposed to bring animals from your own herd, and they were supposed to be the perfect, unblemished animal that, you know— you, God knows the heart of man. And You are like, oh, I'm supposed to sacrifice something to God? Give me that little scrawny one over there. You know, the one that's not going to make it. We'll sacrifice that one. I no, he says, bring your best one, the purest one. And it's possible that things were happening like someone would show up with an animal and they would say, oh, it's not pure enough. You're going to have to buy one of ours, but we'll take yours in as trade and give you 30% credit, Right? That's entirely possible. What was the exchange rate for the money lenders? We don't know that, but uh, chances are, right, the scene here is this is big business. There's an incredible amount of people around the temple and it's the Passover, so it's the busy season, right? People are coming from all over to celebrate the Passover and these guys are cashing in. Was Jesus upset because there were dirty animals and it was such a holy place? Clearly not, because there were supposed to be animals there. That was a part of the whole thing. The thing that's upsetting Jesus here is a thing that we've already seen before. God is being misrepresented. The wrong thing about who God is is being communicated to God's people. And that's the thing that he looks at and says, This cannot stand. I'm going to do something about this. The Passover was to celebrate the deliverance of God's people. How he brought them out of Egypt. That God is the savior of man. And that if you believe in God, death itself can be defeated. That's the point of why all these people are coming there. The point of the sacrificial system was to remind people of the need for forgiveness. You know, people say, you know, I'm not real happy with this sacrificial system thing. You know, Peter's real against that. Uh, you know, the whole idea of like, oh, you're going to bring a cute little lamb and a little lamby. What did he do to anybody? That doesn't seem just. Why would you kill the lamb? And it's like, that is actually exactly God's point. You ever think about that? Why does he choose a lamb? Because nothing could be harder, right? I mean, it'd be like a puppy, you know, in our modern thinking. It would just be like, we're going to take this thing that did nothing, that's cute and adorable and fluffy, and it's not hurting anybody, and we're going to kill it because God says the wages of sin are death. And that, de- that sin, rebellion against God and evil, destroy us. And this lamb or this animal, whatever it is, is innocent. And it's taking my place. I need an innocent substitute to take my place and die because I have rebelled. And so you can see the shock value here is very intentional. It's it's to remind us that we need forgiveness and that we don't want the judgment of God on us. And that God has promised to provide a substitute to take the judgment that we deserve and put it on an innocent being. Now they knew it wasn't like God was literally judging the animal. It was symbolic. It was a picture that we needed an innocent substitute to die for our sins. And that was the point all along. And so the Passover and the temple sacrifice were about these great things that God had done. It was about God being a deliverer, God loving people, God rescuing people, God saving people, God forgiving our sin. And it became about having the right animal and the right coin. It became about the circumstance around it got elevated to where that became the main point. It got to the point where you couldn't really hear yourself think, you couldn't really reflect on these things the way that God had intended because you were in the middle of a giant flea market. It was God, the truth of who God is, being obstructed by a commercial enterprise. Something that was supposed to be spiritual and uplifting and reflective about who God is, becoming this super commercial business. See, the temple sacrifice was about the shocking reality of evil. It was about showing us our need for forgiveness. It was about drawing men's hearts to God. And it had always been about that. You go back into the Old Testament and you read Hosea 6.6, for example. God says, "...for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." This whole sacrificial system thing is a picture to teach you something about me. Don't focus so much on the sacrifice that you don't understand the meaning. David, who was known as a man after God's own heart, wrote in Psalm 51, 15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. Do you see that, how they understood this? The the thinking believers all the way back understood this is a symbol and a picture, but what God wants is your heart. And yet they're super focused on, well, what's the percentage of silver that's in the coin that I'm giving for my temple tax? And what's the exchange rate on the animals, you know, that I bring in? And are they flawless enough? Are they perfect enough? You know, and this whole business springs up around it. And the whole heart of what God had called people to do was obscured by this commerce. So Jesus walks over fashions a whip and says, this is my house. And we're not gonna be deceiving people. We're not gonna be obscuring the truth of who God is today. And he drives them out. And so it says in 17, the disciples see this and they're thinking about the Psalms where it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They're looking at Jesus and that's that's what impressed them. So if you could be an observer, say, what was it that Jesus was doing? What was the thing that came across? It was how much God cares, how much Jesus cares about how God is being represented. That he loves the temple because it is the place where people go to see who God is, to learn about the greatness of God. And he's willing to create conflict, when he sees the power of that being obscured. So, of course, you know, the people who are making money off this object, which anyone would, you know. Imagine, you know, you have Jesus over to Christmas dinner, and he walks in, he says, hey, how you doing? He walks over to the tree, snaps it in half, and starts stomping on the presents like this. And you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I thought this was my party. You know, how offended would we be? We would be like, oh my God, I'm never having you over for Christmas dinner again. Right? That's the shock value of what Jesus is doing here. And so they, they do what we would do. We would say, what gives you the right to do this? The Jews said to him, what sign do you show as authority for doing these things? And Jesus' answer, he says, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And you can see their faces. Come again? What now? This temple, they said, took 46 years to build, and you're saying you're going to raise it up in three days? Who do you think you are? That's no sign at all. We want to know, Jesus, what gives you the right to do this to us? Who has authorized you to have the authority to just take these money changers and these uh, salesmen, and just drive them out of the Gentile court the way that you did. And John cues us in in verse 21. He says, but Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. So the disciples are there too, and they're like, that is a weird response. They had no clue what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> and it was so odd, in fact, that after Jesus was killed, and was in the tomb for 3 days and then resurrected they were going back and they were thinking about this time and they were like remember what he said to the temple officials when he cleaned out the house he said if you destroy my, this temple I'll, I'll raise it up again after 3 days and that's why I have authority to do this he was talking about the resurrection it made sense to them afterwards so the question is, is why is Jesus raising this as, an import, as a point? It's an important question. What gives you the right, Jesus? This has been happening here this way. A lot of people, you know, their entire yearly income was probably dependent on the Passover sales. What gives you the right to put a stop to this? Is Jesus just an appoint, a self-appointed reformer? A zealous man who looks on and says, this does not happen, no. What would give him the right to do that? He's not in authority. Is he just a religious radical that's trying to stir up dissension? Or is the temple literally his house? The glory of God is in his house this day. And there's a sale going on in his yard. And he has every right, if he's God, to say, Get off my lawn. This isn't who I am. This isn't how I want to be portrayed. And you're getting in the way of me connecting with the heart of my people. And so they say to him, What's the proof that you offer that you have this right? And he says, I'm going to be dead for three days and come back to life. That's what he means but it wouldn't have made sense to them any more sense than it would make to the disciples at the time. But the point is very important. What gives Jesus the right to do the things that he does? And this points to the importance and the centrality of the resurrection, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, like this, on multiple occasions, cites this as proof. What authority do you have to do this? I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again after three days. What Jesus is saying is, is God himself is going to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is in my corner and he is behind everything that I do because I'm going to die and God, only God could bring me back to life. And if he does that, that is the stamp of authenticity on everything that I've done and everything that I've said. Because you know only God could do that. And in the same way, because Jesus hangs so many important things on this event, of his resurrection, we could say if he didn't raise, if it wasn't a bodily, physical resurrection, then you would know that God was not behind him. He was just a crazy person, a self-appointed reformer with, like, opinions of his own that he was claiming were God's. And that's a real problem. Jesus would often Accompany miracles with the claims of his authority. A big part of Jesus's miracle ministry is to demonstrate his authenticity as coming from God. Look at Luke 5, 24 and 25. He tells a man that his sins are forgiven. And everybody's shocked. They're like, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says in 524, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Do you see Jesus' argument? They're like, well, how do we know that you have the authority to forgive sins? And he's like, I understand why that could be confusing. Because I can say your sins are forgiven, but you don't see that sins are forgiven. But I just told him his sins are forgiven. And so that you will know that I have the authority to do that, I'm also going to tell this person born paralyzed to get up and walk home. And you see the connection that he's making. If God does that, then God is saying, yep, listen to him. This is tangible proof of the reality of his message. And this is a point that Jesus makes over and over again. And it's why it's so important that there's a literal, literal physical resurrection because if that didn't happen then Jesus's teachings are unauthorized. Paul knew this. He said in 1 Corinthians 15:17 through 19, "And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have f- fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ and this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied." And so anybody claiming to be a a theologian, anyone claiming to be a believer in the Bible who denies the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ has a big problem with Scripture. Because the point is, is that this must happen in order for us to know that Jesus' death actually paid for our sin. And if it didn't happen, we are all just wasting our time with this stuff. That was Paul's perspective. And so when the Pharisees come up and they say, what gives you the right to do this? Jesus says, I have the right because this is my house, because I'm God, because I care about how people view me. I care about how I am being represented to my people. And I have every right to do this. And if you want proof, stick around. So we read this story, and we got to ask the question, which Jesus is it? Why did John put this right next to the wedding at Cana? You know, that picture that we painted, Jesus is fun, Jesus is nice, Jesus keeps the party going, Jesus keeps people from being ashamed. Is it party Jesus? who makes water into wine, who's humble, who protects people from shame? Or is it angry Jesus, making a whip, driving people out of the temple and turning over the tables? Which Jesus is it? And the answer is simple, it's both. That's not a contradictory picture. It's two different approaches that God takes to the same problem. God was being misrepresented by the hand washing in Cana and God was being misrepresented by the mall that had been set up in his house. And Jesus deals with those two different things in two different ways, but he does them both because he's zealous that we would know and truly see the reality of who God is. That's what's driving him. And that will take a different approach in different situations. But in both cases, he destroys the obstacles, obscuring the people's ability to see who God is. That's what he's zealous about. And sometimes you do that with kindness and love and humility and patience. And sometimes you fashion a whip and you clean the house. I love what Tim Keller said about this. He said, if Jesus comes into your life, he will on the one hand sometimes fill your table with a feast And other times, he will turn your table over and spill everything on the ground. (laughs) And, you know, I've been following Jesus Christ for 20 years, and I can say, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. He will do whatever is needed in the moment in your best interest. If you need a hug, if you need encouragement, if you need joy, if you need to be lifted up, he will lift you up. And if you need to be taken down a peg, humbled, if you need some, a string of bad circumstances to help you recalibrate your thinking about who you are and the way that the world is, he will do whatever it takes, whatever is most loving for you. In your best interest, that is what Jesus Christ will do. And so, you know, it's not like, well, you know, it's going to be all fun and good times and easy going. No, but there'll be some of that. And it's not going to be all dark and scary and, you know, weird. But there'll be some of that too. Because the point isn't make you happy, make you sad. The point is to show you love. And to bring you closer to him. Whatever it takes... So that we could see God clearly. Jesus in Luke 4.18 clearly states his mission. At the very beginning of his ministry, he walks into the synagogue. He reads the scripture from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery the recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. And we know that Jesus enabled blind people to see. We know that he enabled paralyzed people to walk. We know that he was a champion of the poor. But who is he talking about here? Is he just talking about that? He says to set free those who are oppressed. Who are the oppressed? It's all of us. Who are the captives? It's all of us. What are we captive to? A false picture, a false image of who God is and the fleshly desires of our hearts. We are enslaved to self, captivated with our own greatness, and we are rebelling against a picture of God that is patently false. We are oppressed, we are blind, we are confused, and we are captive. And Jesus has come to set us free. Do you see how he's doing that? Do you see how John is giving us examples of the way that God wants to break our chains? It's beautiful. It's amazing. Jesus cleans house. You know, I think one of the things that we should take away from this picture is God is scary. You know, I mean, you know, when I'm talking about he didn't lose his temper and was running around, you know, like a crazy person, that's not to say that he wasn't threatening. I don't want to soften that for you because these guys were making a lot of money and I don't think they would have been easily driven out of their place. And God does scary things. He is not under our control. That's one of the scariest things if we really think about it is we don't know exactly what God's going to do. That's why we would create all these rituals and all these trappings around religion is so that we can make God more predictable, more in control. God will be there when you go to church on Sunday morning and then he will stay there when you go home. That's predictable. That's controllable, right? God is not in a box of our making he is wild and he is free and he is in charge and we are not and that's part of what this story is trying to tell us is god is god and he will do what he wants to do and we're like hmm, how close do i want to be to that <laughs> god believes he has the right to speak into your life also very scary who are you To come and tell me how to live my life that's the question the pharisees are asking jesus who are you what right do you have and that's what we look at god and we say who is god to tell me right from wrong who is god what right does he have and he's like the owner and creator of all things the one who knit you together in your mother's womb the one who knit your mother together in her mother's womb The one who spoke all life into being. That's who I am. But I also gave you free will. I gave you the ability to rebel. But that doesn't mean that you should. That doesn't mean that it's good for you to rebel. And so when I see things going wrong in your life, I will step in. Not because I'm so offended that you're not listening to me, but because I love you and I see you headed for a cliff. And we're still terrified of that. Because we want to be in charge. God is scary because he will reveal the truth of what's in your heart. And the reality is, is that we are so good, so good at lying to ourselves, aren't we? Telling ourselves that we actually have good motives. Telling ourselves, well, we had to do this thing that we didn't really like, but it was the only option that we had. Telling ourselves whatever it takes to feel better about ourselves for the things that we do, and God describes himself as the light that wants to shine into your life, exposing the reality of your heart. If that doesn't terrify you, you don't understand what that means. I'm going to see the reality, the truth of who I am next to the goodness of God. That is scary, and that is what Jesus is doing here in the temple. He's shining the light on a serious problem And saying things are not supposed to be this way. On the other hand, God is good. He's scary because he is God. But he's good and he loves you. And he wants you to have a joyful life. You were made to have a joyful life. Fulfilled and purposeful and meaningful and connected and relational and loving. That's... The kind of God he is, he created us for that purpose. That we would know him and know one another and be in harmony and connected and enjoyment of one another. That's why he has to take you by the scruff of the neck from time to time and shake you to say, no, this isn't who you are. This isn't who you should be. And why, if we take an honest assessment of how our choices are going... Without God, we usually find that we're really not that happy. We're not going to change, but we're not that happy. And God is like, just come home. Just lower your guard. Put your fists down and come home. Come be with me. God is good because he's ready and willing to bring you into his family eternally. You can be a son or daughter of the all-powerful creator God of the universe. You have to put down your rebellion and come home. That is this picture. That's what Jesus wants them to see. You know, you think about how corrupt How fed up we are with religion in our day, with the church, and all the misrepresentations, and all the things that happen, and the corruption, and ah, you know, you're just like, how can this be true? How can this be real? And the same exact things were going on in Jesus's day, and he, God, actually showed up and cleaned house. It's pretty amazing. It's beautiful. For those of us who have known God, what, what do we take away from this? Is it's really just don't be lulled to sleep. You know, as you walk with God, as you grow in your relationship with God, you know, we can become like the salesmen and the money changers. I'm sure it started as a good thing. People needed animals, and they couldn't travel with them. And to have a source right there by the temple, you know, it probably started as a ministry, Right? Literally, like, we'll, give, we'll just sell it to you at cost so that you can have what you need. And then over a few hundred years, they were like, well, we could get a percentage. And then it became, well, we could farm this out and just get a cut and not have to do any of the work, right? That's how these things go. They start with these good intentions. We start with these good intentions, and we do things. And you can look at things in your life, and you can say, I'm doing all these things for God. And the question is, are you still doing them for God? (laughs) Or has your heart slowly begun to shift into something else? Maybe you're still doing exactly the same things that you've always been doing. But that slow leak is taking something that used to be something that was about God and now it's its own thing. And it's about that. And if God takes it away from me, I'm gonna be mad. is something that we all could look at this and say, Lord, keep me from that. Keep me from the slow leak where I start out doing something for the right intentions and I do it because it's, it's glorifying to God and now all of a sudden I'm doing it because it's bringing me glory or it's giving me purpose or it's giving me an identity or it's just comfortable because it's what I've always been doing. And I challenge you to this prayer, ask God to come in and clean house in your heart. A little shudder of fear should have just rippled through this room. (laughs) Why? Why would it be scary to turn to God and say, will you please clean house with me? Drive out the money changers in my heart. Because we know they're there. And we're fearful that God isn't good. And we're fearful that, what's it going to take? What level of shame and embarrassment and failure is it going to take to to get me right? And what God's answer to that is, is very simple. It's very clear. Don't worry about that. I've got your back. Just present yourself to me. Ask me to show you what's on your heart so that we can get back. Get back the beginning when we were doing these things because they showed you more about me why don't we pray yeah God we are grateful for your word and that you are not who we want you to be you're better than that and it's, it's hard God we struggle to believe that you are good because we want to live in rebellion but I do pray, God, that you will cleanse my heart, that you'll drive out the money changers, that you'll help all of us to be open and to not be fearful, God, of your goodness, but to just go deeper and deeper and to let you in so that we can have more of you. Amen. Amen.